The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about the 1958 British sci-fi horror classic, Fiend Without a Face. Uh, this is truly a kind of international venture because this is a British film about an American atomic air force base in Canada. Yeah, this is uh, this was also independently financed, uh, if I remember correctly. And hey, everybody, we're classing it up a bit here today because this is a Criterion Collection film. <laughs> um, I think the only previous Criterion Collection film we've watched was Godzilla versus Hedora. Um, I'm now, if you're wondering, well, what is the Criterion Collection criteria? It is quote unquote important classics and contemporary films. So today's 1958 film is about a bunch of dudes shooting brain monsters with handguns. In a truly marvelous fashion, I will say yes. that the special effects of the last like 15 minutes of this movie, it's hard to believe that they were released in a movie of 1958. Like, uh, this is a movie uh, mostly about invisible monsters, but once you finally see the monsters revealed in their true form at the end of the movie, they are these amazing uh, stop motion brain creatures. And they are Ray Harryhausen level. It's like top-notch 
stop motion effects and also gore that is absolutely mm-hmm. disgusting it like when the when the military buzz cuts are shooting these brains there is just chunky salsa flying out of the bullet <laughs> holes it is gross yeah yeah and the sound effects are wonderful too lots of squiggy sound effects for these guys when they're crawling around but also when they're inevitably shot or busted up with an axe uh yeah the, the effects here really feel ahead of their time um you know there, there may be some I'm sure there are some other films you can compare them favorably to, but like just for my own part, I'm thinking Brainstem Monster. I also think of The Tingler. The Tingler came out the Ooh. following year in 1959, and I love The Tingler. Uh, that's a great film, great monster, but in, in, and it's it's effectively portrayed on the uh, on the screen. But the like the the effects gap between how we see The Tingler and how we see these creatures, uh, it's it's pretty pretty wide. Yeah, I would also say a major difference is that the main actor in The Tingler is Vincent Price, who, I mean, yeah, gotta love Vincent (laughs) Price. The main actor in this movie is much more down the middle of the kind of guy who was always the stock hero in these 1950s sci-fi horror movies. Absolute flat-top dolt, just a gray bucket filled to the brim with skim milk. (laughs) What is it about these 50s movies having the most boring square hero almost every time? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it very much seems to have been the style of the day. I mean, I'm instantly reminded of 51's The Thing from Another World, which is just wall-to-wall with interchangeable guys that look like this. But in terms of characters, I did enjoy a, a bit of the character texture in uh, Fiend Without a Face because this central uh, rectangle man is surrounded by a really interesting cast of weirdos. There's this guy named either Gibson or Gibbons. I, I don't remember, but he's like the town constable who has this baffling accent. He sounds like <laughs> he's from Mars. Like sometimes yeah. it's, he sounds Irish. Sometimes he sounds Canadian. Sometimes he sounds like New York. I I really could you tell what was going on with this guy i could not in general the accents in this this movie were were kind of varied at times you felt more like you're in a european setting yeah as opposed to a canadian setting but yeah you've got him you've got the sandwich man i don't know if you noticed the sandwich (laughs) man the guy who's like in the military base trying to sneak bites of bologna when the commander isn't looking uh (laughs) and then you've got the the psychic scientist this is our second movie in a row with an awesome crank and then finally, of course, all the atomic radiation stuff with the, the workers in the reactor core who look like they are wearing oiled up leather trench coats. Yep. <laughs> so is this a great movie all around? Not really. It does have some really great monsters in it, but does it meet the Criterion Criterion? Is it an important classic? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I find it comforting that Criterion Collection has a film like this in there because, again, otherwise, you know, I love Criterion Collection. I think they, they you know, they, they do a great job, and some of their editions uh, are, are fabulous. But if it were all just, um, you know, awesome samurai films and Fellini pictures, uh, it wouldn't be the same. It's nice that you have room for not only Cronenberg but also a picture like this. You got to let the camp in, yeah, yeah. And those middle category movies, too, that uh, they do a lot of. The ones that are kind of artsy, but also kind of pulp trash. Uh, like I feel like Night of the Hunter is kind of in that middle category. I've got the criterion of that, and it's great. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, they also, uh, Son of the White Mare. Uh, the first time I watched it, I watched it on the Criterion channel, their uh, mm-hmm. streaming uh, product. So, uh, yeah, they have a lot of animation on there. There's a lot of weird stuff in there. So, uh, if you 
if you know, don't don't assume that it is just samurai films and Fellini. There's there's room for a lot of other stuff. Not to say samurai films and Fellini uh, are not awesome and cannot be super weird as well. Now, before we get into discussing some of the themes of this movie, what, what's the elevator pitch? I believe it is your brain is gross. Your brain is a monster. Oh, man, how best to quickly summarize this. Uh, There is like an atomic air base somewhere in northern Canada. It's like way up in Manitoba, Mm -hmm. and it's being operated by the U.S. military. They're running some kind of radar experiments, and they've got a big nuclear reactor. And people in the local town are mad because of the nuclear reactor. Their cows are giving sour milk. People start mysteriously dying when they're being attacked by some kind of invisible creature. And eventually, the, uh, the culprit is linked to the psychical experiments of a crazy old crank who uh, specializes in what, what does he call it psychic investigations or something yeah and he's kind of leeching radiation off of the research facility yeah. uh, to further these ends but i think this movie actually gives us a great opportunity to talk about a problem faced by many horror movies that go this route which is how do you handle an invisible monster? Mm. Uh, now, even in a movie with a generally visible beast, the question of how much you should show and how early you should show it, I think is a very important one. I, I, I tend to err more on the side of showing less of your monster, especially early on, even though I love to see a good monster. You know, it's good for the pacing of the film. Keep the mystery alive longer. But at the same time, you've got to have some interesting imagery in the movie to to excite the mind, to sort of titillate the your, your sense of horror. Uh, you know, you need some swatches of fur to rub, so you've got to show a little bit of the monster. A movie with an invisible monster can't exactly do this by showing you, like, bits or flashes of the monster. So they have to provide that texture some other way. And maybe this can be through sound design, like we can't see it, but we can hear it. Uh, sometimes this is through using environmental effects, like seeing things moving around because of the monster or monster or seeing footsteps or something. And I think this movie, uh, it, it's most memorable once you can finally see the brains that are attacking everyone, but it actually has some earlier scenes that do work very well with this invisibility, uh, criterion. Uh, one image that really worked for me was the scene where the invisible monster cuts a slit in a screen door, which I think is all done with stop motion, but it looks fantastic and it's very creepy. Yeah, that's a great sequence. And it's, it's our first, I think it's our first real taste of the stop motion mastery to come. Well, I was trying to think about movies that do invisible monsters really well and thinking what techniques do they use? How do they do it? Uh, one recent example that came to mind is the 2020 remake of the uh, universal horror classic, The Invisible Man. This version starred Elizabeth Moss. And I think th- this is a fantastic example. This movie works especially well because the invisibility of the, the villain is not just a a blunt practical aid to his evil plans, but it's sort of a cohesive theme that's interwoven through the story. Like it poses questions that people, you know, many people would face at some point. What do you do when the thing that is threatening you is something that nobody can see? And if you can't see it yourself, how do you know it's real and not just a figment of your imagination? Uh, and this plays directly into the mechanics of the film. Like, there are really scary scenes in it, 
And they work by creating lots of uncertainty. There's, there's a lot of, did we really just see that? Or did I hear something weird? There are several uh, memorable, long, uneasy shots of empty rooms. There's nobody in the room. Nothing is moving. You're just seeing the empty room for a, for a long time. And you keep wondering, is something going to happen? Am I going to see anything? Am I going to see something move? And the tension created by that ambiguity is horror gold. Yeah, I've, I've heard great things about, about this one. I, I haven't seen it yet, and I have to, have to say I was probably a little bit turned off of the idea of Invisible Man movies in general because of uh, Paul uh, Verhoeven's uh, Hollow Man picture Ugh. years and years ago. Oh, that is a, I love Paul Verhoeven, but that movie is a travesty. It is horrible. <laughs> but I love Elizabeth Moss, so uh, you know yeah. some, some solid Invisible Man effects. Uh, I'd, I'd be in for that. It's it's weird to think about Invisible Man movies because I don't know the it's very it's a very appealing concept. Obviously, we keep coming back to it, um, but then to have a non visual enemy, you have to have these visual clues to really drive home what's happening. And then I also think about various ghost films and hologram people movies where you have somebody who is invisible to everybody, but the viewer can see them. And for some reason, I, I was just wondering, like, does that work just as well as having some sort of a really cool invisible person effect? Um, could you do an adaptation of The Invisible Man and just say, actually, we're going to see The Invisible Man the whole time, um, and that'll just be our point of view for things? Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Just so, like, it's understood that the characters can't. Well, actually, I can think of a movie that is sort of like that, which is Predator. Ah. Uh, you know, so in Predator, there are scenes where the the alien has its invisibility cloak on. And, like, we, the audience, can see there's something there. It's not, I mean, we can't see the full design of the creature, but we can see a kind of blurry humanoid outline. Mm-hmm. The audience is able to see this in a way that the characters can't really. I think there's only, like, one character in the movie who can kind of see something when none of the others can. Hmm. But there's actually a way I would say that Fiend Without a Face and Predator have something very similar in common. Both are movies with invisible monsters that create a kind of boundary-crossing revelatory moment in the final act of the film when the invisibility is is turned off, basically. Like, for most of the runtime in both movies, the monsters are invisible. But then in the last 15 minutes or so, the invisibility fails, and we get to see their true form. And that transition... Uh, is exciting. It makes it feel like the movie is kind of ascended into a different place, a different level of stakes. It creates this escalating sense of horror that I think would not be the case if the monsters had just been fully visible from early on. Yeah, yeah. And it works well like that because that's, like you said earlier, that's that's often the case with monsters in general. Uh, yeah, don't show a lot of the monster early on. Maybe you even rely on a lot of uh, like monster point of view shots and uh, and shots that uh, sometimes obscure completely the creature that will be revealed in full later on in the picture. Yeah, it's nice to get little glimpses or clues. Like uh, I think in, in Predator, there's a scene early on where we don't see the creature's full form, but we see, I think, like... Uh, we see from its point of view and we see like its arm after it's been injured or something. And then mm-hmm. with the the brains in this movie, we never see them in full, but like at one point we see one, I think moving through a puddle of paint or something. And, and yeah. we see the, the trail that it leaves. Yeah. Predator and fiend without a face are, are also similar in that some movies put off as long as possible showing you that monster because 
let's face it, the monster effect is not that great. But yeah. both Predator and Fiend Without a Face have amazing monsters, you know, given the time periods that these films were released in and also, like, the budgetary constraints, uh, certainly on Fiend Without a Face. Uh, like, bo- both of the effects look amazing when they're finally revealed, uh, which uh, is, is almost something of a surprise in a film. It's kind of like in... Um, Friday the 13th, New Blood, when the mask comes off Jason and it looks so amazing. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> there's, there's part of me that doesn't expect the, the sub-mask makeup to be that good. You might expect something more like in Jason Takes Manhattan, where he's like a cute gray Muppet. <laughs> okay, well, before we go in any further, maybe we should hear some trailer audio. That's not all. The entire spinal cord is missing. What? It's incredible. It's as if some mental vampire were at work. Does it come from another country or another world? This terrifying menace that G2 must destroy before it's too late. The image is fading, sir. There it goes again. Same trouble. How can they stop this invisible force whose only warning is a weird, blood-chilling sound? Only two people still alive can help this agent find the answers. The girl who could be a spy, and the scientist who could be the destroyer of the entire human race. We're facing a new form of life that nobody understands. I believe it feeds on the radiation from your atomic plants, and that it's evil. Stop them. There's only one way shut down your atomic plant. If I can get through, I can blow up the control room. All right. Uh, yeah, that's a fun, uh, fun trailer, um, in- including the, the phrase science gone wild, uh, <laughs> which I guess is more, more of a pure statement at the time. Um, I, I mean, a- another thing I think it's worth appreciating about this is I think Fiend Without a Face was really pushing what you could get away with in terms of, of mainstream film content in 1958. Like the level of terror and explicit gore and stuff in this is really unusual for the time period. I can't really think of any other movie like it. No, no, it definitely stands out. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. 
Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. So let's get into uh, some of the people responsible for this baby. So the director was Arthur Crabtree, who lived 1900 through 1975, 
British filmmaker who learned his craft under a young Alfred Hitchcock. Um, uh, Hitchcock wasn't that much older than him, but uh, but that's where he apparently learned uh, learned his craft. His first film was 1945's Madonna of the Seven Moons. And after a string of pictures in the early 1950s, he switched to directing TV, directing episodes of such shows as The Adventures of Lancelot uh, and The Adventures of Robin Hood, <laughs> even 1958's Ivanhoe, uh, starring Roger Moore. What? <laughs> yeah. Wow, that sounds dry. That sounds like a dry cracker. <laughs> yeah. So towards the end of Crabtree's career, and he retired by 1961, he moved into B pictures for just a handful of pictures to sort of round out his career. Uh, but as psychotronic film scholar Michael Weldon points out, uh, Crabtree really hit it out of the park uh, with the last two. Uh, two hits in a row for Mr. Crabtree, uh, Michael Weldon writes, uh, because he directed Fiend Without a Face in 1958, followed in 1959 by Horrors in the Black Museum, a hypno-murder film starring Michael Goff. Hmm. Now, I have not seen that other one. And also, I can't vouch for this because I don't remember what the source was. But sometime a while back, I know I was reading about this movie somewhere and uh, recall the claim that Crabtree was not exactly happy to be working on Fiend without a face and may have tried mm. to, did he try to abandon the production or something? Um, I, I don't, I don't have details on that. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. This is a guy who had not been doing B movies most of his career and was just kind of, I think, finishing things up <laughs> career wise. Uh-huh. Uh, but that you see that is sometimes the case with uh, with directors, actors. You know, you look back on on some of some of these uh, individuals, and you might say remember them for a certain picture, but th- th- that picture wasn't really big on their radar at the time. It was just like the next step in before they moved on to this or that. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's always interesting, like what pictures really stand out in a filmography. Uh, you know, even though they might not have been super important to that individual at that time. But there's no arguing with the results. This one's this one's fun. Yeah. All right. Now, as far as the screenwriter on this goes, we'll get to the source material in just a second. But uh, the screenwriter was Herbert J. Later, who was born in 1912, died in 1983. And Joe, do you remember when we were talking about the Nazi zombie movie Shockwaves from 1977? And we discussed uh, the weird subgenre of Nazi zombie movies. And we pointed to two earlier films with Nazi undead stuff in them. Oh yeah, this seems to be a a uh, a rich vein of exploitation movie material, undead Nazis in one way or another. Yeah, well, uh one of the films we mentioned was a 1943 John Carradine film titled Revenge of the Zombies, but the other was a 1966 film titled The Frozen Dead in which a mad scientist keeps the heads of Nazi war criminals alive so he can uh, reattach them to new bodies. Well, Herbert J. Leader wrote and directed that movie. He also directed episodes of Meet the Press in the late 1940s <laughs> and wrote and directed 1967's It starring Roddy McDowell. That's It with an exclamation point. Not to be confused with It with a period. Right. <laughs> or It with a question mark. Or the thought-provokingly open-ended It with a semicolon. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, but like I say, this was this was an adaptation of of a of a existing work. That existing work was a, was a short story titled "The Thought Monster" by Amelia Reynolds, who lived 1903 through 1978. She was a groundbreaking female classic pulp author who penned uh, "The Thought Monster" in 1930. She wrote numerous works of short fiction, many of which I, I'm to understand are detective stories. Uh, mm. Though I have I have to admit, I don't think I've read any of her work unless. 
I am, you know, it's possible given she wrote a number of things, maybe I read something in a, in a compilation at some point and have completely forgotten about it. Yeah. Her story was originally published in weird tales. And, uh, I think you mentioned detective stories. I, I haven't read it, uh, in full, but I found the full text and I did quickly scan through it, uh, looking for some, how, how some scenes might align with scenes in the movie. And it looks to me like the original story is more sort of detective oriented than the movie is. I mean, the movie has your standard military square as the leading man in the movie. He's named major Cummings in the original story. It seems like Cummings is not a military dude, but a quote, psychic investigator who arrives in town to get to the bottom of these strange murders. Yeah, now that sounds more like a like a weird tale sort of story. Get a psychic investigator in there. Rob, do you mind if I read an excerpt from the story uh, featuring a trope that has uh, come up on this show a number of times before? Oh, please do. All right, so this is from The Thought Monster. That afternoon, Cummings called upon Dr. Bradley, who was the coroner. I am going to make a strange request, doctor, he began. I'm going to ask that you permit me to photograph the eyes of this poor man. The doctor, greatly mystified, gave his consent. In the case of a violent death, Cummings explained as he set up his apparatus, an image of the last thing seen is usually photographed upon the retina of the eye. I want to see whether a carefully developed enlargement won't show us that image. At Bradley's interested request, he promised to let him know the results of the experiment. Two or three hours later, therefore, he returned to the doctor's office. I have drawn a blank, he confessed. The eye shows absolutely nothing. But, objected the doctor, I thought it was what he saw that killed him. Your theory didn't work then, asked Bradley sympathetically. No, Cummings answered, and yet I don't see how it could have failed in a case of this kind. There is one alternative. Perhaps there was nothing for the dying man to see. Mm. Oh yeah, this is a fun... Um bad science concept that uh, famously pops up in the 1972 film Horror Express, a Spanish horror film that we've referenced a couple of times on the show. Right. The idea that you could find the killer's identity by looking at the retina of the dead person because the killer was the last thing they saw. But here, uh, they try to use that, but then it doesn't work because, I mean, in actuality, it doesn't work. But also uh, because the monsters themselves are invisible. And this connects to a a recurring theme that's in the movie and the story as well, which is that the people who died – die with expressions of such terror on their faces, it appears they have been scared to death. Mm. All right. Now, we've already had a lot of talk about the uh, the military square or the psychic investigator, Major Cummings. Who, who's the actor who plays this guy? This is Marshall Thompson, who lived 1925 through 1992. All-American actor. You couldn't get more all-American for the 1950s cinema than this guy. Uh-huh. Um, he's like and, a football hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's, I kept thinking of him as, uh, as, as Major Milk Dud uh, here. He just, just <laughs> I don't know. But, um, yeah, he's uh, he, looking at his filmography. He's not a guy I was really familiar with, but he seems to have two major wings to his uh, filmography. Cult films and family movies about animals. Oh, boy. <laughs> So first, the cult stuff. Uh, He appears in Cult of the Cobra from 1955, this movie, of course. He's also from It, The Terror from Beyond Space from 1958, and First Man into Space 1959. Wait, is that the same It with Roddy McDowell? I think it might be the same It uh, as as before. I can't imagine there are two uh, It exclamation point movies. I just didn't have the... uh, But weirdly enough, it's not It colon so it exclamation point colon the terror from beyond space 
wait a minute, the years don't match up. Uh, these might be two different it with an exclamation points. Yes, you were correct. <laughs> it is two separate <laughs> movies that have it exclamation point. Well, all right. I guess, you know, it's a solid title. Now, the it exclamation point with Roddy McDowell, I will say, I have not seen it, but it has a great looking monster in it. The monster costume looks like something, uh, ooh, it's, it's pretty, pretty intimidating. Looks kind of like a space mummy. Anyway, so those are those are Thompson's more cult uh, films. Now onto the animal movies, and this is probably where some of you probably know this guy if you're if you're familiar with some of these older films. He did a horse movie called Gallant Bess in '46, and then he went on to star in 1965's Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion, and then the TV series spinoff of that, Doctari, which ran for 89 episodes. Wow! Um, which I mean, of course, 65. A major TV show, like 89 episodes is like half a season. So I don't, I don't know how long it actually ran off the top of my head. But 89 episodes uh, by today's standards, certainly substantial. He later directed some Flipper episodes and pops up as uh, the character just referred to as director in Samuel Fuller's serious 1982 film, White Dog, starring Christy McNichol and Paul Winfield. Okay, but but other cast members, uh, I mentioned this movie also has a crank in it, much like the Lorelei's Grasp did. So Lorelei's Grasp, remember, had the uh, the 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 professor who had a lab just full of animals wandering <laughs> around, and he figured out that if you inject a severed human hand with something and then shine a light on it, it will turn into a lizard hand. But then if you stab it with a radioactive knife, it turns into a pile of nothing, mm-hmm. and. That was his breakthrough. This movie has a crank who discovers that you can turn your thoughts into an external zombie-like creature that goes around sucking out people's brains. Yeah, like basically he develops a tulpa, uh, you know, this kind of like psychic projection monster. Yeah. Um, Which uh, I I do have to stress again, uh, you know, the the plot leading up, it's not like one of these movies where... Uh, oh, just skip to the last 13 minutes because the rest is track. Like they, they do a, it's stuffy by t- many of today's standards, but I feel like they do a pretty good job establishing uh, conflict within a given environment. You get a feel for where this movie's happening uh, and so forth. So uh, I, I ultimately like all of this stuff, even though watching it or sort of rewatching it uh, the other day, I was, uh, I, I was excited to get to the brain monsters, but I still had to appreciate the path that we took to get there. Yeah, like I said earlier, I mean, so the main military characters are kind of boring, but they're also kind of weird in certain ways that we'll mention when we talk about the plot. And the broader cast of characters, including the scientists and some of the townspeople, I think are uh, positively wacky by by 1958 standards. Oh, yeah. And this guy playing Professor R.E. Walgate, uh, Naston Reeves. Oh, this, this guy's a lot of fun. He lived 1893 through 1971. I think it's my favorite performance in the whole film because he has this great, weird kind of uh, crunch jaw delivery. And he yes. comes off as kind of a protagonist slash sort of antagonist blend of J.R.R. Tolkien and Chancellor Palpatine. That's good. Yeah. And uh, the, I have to say the Palpatine uh, thing connection here for me came largely from a line he has in which uh, Barbara, his uh, assistant, uh, says, I didn't know you had a laboratory. He mentions he has a laboratory. And he's like, it's not a story the Jedi would tell you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <that's great. laughs> 
But uh, anyway, Reeves had 152 credits, uh, according to IMDb, and acted from 1931 through 1970. He appeared in the Forsyth Saga in the 60s and is also known among you know some classic film fans for his role in Housemaster from 38. He also pops up on The Avengers, The Prisoner, and the film School for Scoundrels from 1960, which I believe was remade in recent years. The Dennis the Menace Academy of, uh, of Pranks and Hijinks. Yeah. <laughs> I think he played a lot of, like, stuffy upper-crust characters. Uh, well, I found him quite lively and enjoyable in this movie, even though his character is supposed to be, I think, like, physically and mentally depleted. He's sort mm-hmm. of on his last legs when we meet him. But, yeah, he has this very pleasing mixture of, uh, you know, a, a kind of – uh, jovial, benign, uh, British aristocratic personality, kind of like the uh, the way Bertrand Russell talked, uh, if you've mm-hmm. ever seen uh, tapes of him. But then also mix in, yeah, like you say, some Palpatine, like a little bit of Edge of Sith. Yeah, yeah. Which is a good line to walk with this character, because like I say, he turns out being responsible for the, the mental vampires that are going around invisibly sucking people's brains out through holes in the back of their head. All right, now I mentioned Barbara. Uh, this character's name is Barbara Gressel. Grissel. Grissel. Um, Barbara Grissel. That would be, uh, <laughs> that'd be more of a Cronenberg character. Uh, yeah. But anyway, she's played by uh, Kim Parker, who lived 1932 through 2010. She was an Austrian refugee who acted in a number of mostly, I think, British films between 54 and 59, including The Good Companions, uh, The Man Without a Body, and a number of you will know this film. 1956 uh, gave us Fire Maidens uh, from Outer Space or Fire Maidens of Outer Space. This was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in the day, and I remember it as being pretty fun. Not a good film by any stretch of the imagination, but, uh, but very enjoyable as a, as, a, as a bad movie. I don't know if I've seen this episode. Was this in one of the early seasons? This was a yeah, this was a Joel episode and oh, I only vaguely remember like it, it had fire maidens in it. They were from outer mm-hmm. space and there was some sort of poorly executed beast man. It was kind of like a charred-skinned monster. Okay, now you're going to have to help me, Joe, with some of these others because I'm going to name some people, I'm going to name some characters and I don't necessarily know which interchangeable military dudes some of these people were. <laughs> Okay, I'll do my best, but I'm not sure about any of this. Okay, so there's a Captain Captain Al Chester in this film, and that character is played by Terry Kilburn. I think maybe this is like the little the Jimmy Olsen guy who's Major Cummings' little buddy. Yes, I think that would make sense. Uh, so th- this this is actually this is a really fun connection. So this guy was born in 1926, and as of this recording, is uh, still alive at age I think 95, going to turn 96 this year. Um, and, uh, he started out as a child actor in Hollywood. He acted on screen from 1938 through 1969. Um, he famously played Tiny Tim in 1938's A Christmas Carol. Oh. Yeah. Other film roles of note include 1939's Goodbye, Mr. Chips and 1962's Lolita. And, uh, he was a longtime partner of American actor Charles Nolte, who lived 1923 through 2010. Well, if he is the character I'm thinking of, he appears to be having a great time in this movie. Uh, again, not a su- not a superior uh, part on the page, I would say, except for uh, right at the beginning, he gets to accuse our leading man of abusing drugs, like it's the first line in the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get back to that. <laughs> All right. Now I, now, I do remember this character. We also have Dr. Bradley. Dr. Bradley, 
is played by Peter Madden. Madden lived 1904 through 1976. British actor who appears in 1963's From Russia with Love, James Bond film. Uh, 1976's The Message. And he also pops up on The Avengers. And he plays The Undertaker in the opening sequence of The Prisoner. Uh, Other films of note in his uh, filmography include Frankenstein Created Woman, The Kiss of the (laughs) Vampire, and Dr. Zhivago. Oh, okay. Is this guy the... Wait, which doctor is this? Is he the local doctor or is he the military doctor? That is a good question that I am not prepared to answer, but he's one of those two doctors. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I believe they're both... Both of the two doctor characters are kind of like, ah, these locals, what can you do? Uh, Yeah. Well, is he the doctor who gets to say, okay, here's what happened to this dead man. Uh, His brains and spinal cord were sucked out through two holes in the back of his head. I think that's the military doctor who says that. Yeah, this was the one with a very gaunt face. Oh, okay. So I think he's the local doctor and who like counters that guy by saying, well, I don't know of any animal in these parts who would suck out someone's brain and spinal cord through their neck. All right, one other actor of note, and it's uh, this character, Sergeant Casper, played by Michael Balfour, who lived 1918 through 1997. Uh, Again, I'm not exactly sure which military dude this was, uh, but he has two very notable credits. He plays a scientist in Tim Burton's Batman, and he was the first murderer in the 1971 adaptation of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Uh, the two murderers are not huge roles in Macbeth, but it's solid henchman work. And uh, I have to say, I was delighted to see in the uh, 2021 Macbeth adaptation from Joel Cohen, um, B-movie action star and former Shao Kahn, Brian Thompson plays one of the murderers. So really? uh, the, one of the many great reasons to check out that film. Oh, wow. You just reminded me that I haven't seen this yet. Uh, and I would like to. Is, is Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth? Yes. Awesome. Yeah, you've got Denzel Washington, uh, just just a wonderful cast, top to bottom, and uh, beautifully shot in, in black and white, very dreamlike. Uh, I, I loved it. Yeah, I got to see that. Now, as far as the music goes on this one, uh, this was composed by Buxton Orr, who lived 1924 through 1997, Scottish-born composer who did nine film scores for various genre films, including The Haunted Strangler, Corridors of Blood, First Man into Space, Dr. Blood's Coffin, and The Snake Woman. He also did some soundtrack work on Doctor Who in 1964 and 1965. Okay, now we should probably mention whoever did the stop-motion effects in this movie, because they are tremendous. Yes. Yeah. Again, tremendous effects of these stop motion brain monsters and and a few other stop motion effects. Uh, Peter Nielsen also has a special effects credit on this. But for the most part, we're looking at the Austrian uh, duo of Rupel and Nordhoff. So that's never heard of them. (laughs) Yeah, I I had not heard of them either. Um, But uh, the this is Flo Nordhoff, who lived 1914 through 1987 and Carl Ludwig Ruppel, born 1915. I'm assuming Ruppel is deceased because he would be 106 or 107 by now, but uh, I'm not sure. I, I couldn't find a, a date for his death if he is, in fact, dead. Hmm. So these two were apparently based out of Munich, and I was looking into their bios a little bit. Ruppel apparently directed a trio of short propaganda films uh, for the Nazis under the Third Reich in the late 30s and early 40s. I could not find out much about them, but his name comes up three times in the book Hitler's Third Reich of the Movies by Rolf Giesen, uh, though kind of in passing. So at least based on what I was was looking through this book, it doesn't seem like he was a major figure, uh, but he uh, he did direct a few things. 
Now, Nordhoff does not come up in that book, and according to IMDb, wasn't active in film till 1953. And Nordhoff actually directed a 1967 anti-totalitarian animated short film titled Hands Up, Mr. Uh, Rasnichi, uh, for which he was also an animator. He also directed a short animated film in 1960 titled uh, De, uh, uh, De Pupiline. And then Rupel and Nordhoff worked together on The Star of Africa in 57 uh, by director Alfred uh, uh, Weidenmann. Uh, Nordhoff was also a painter. Nordhoff's full name was uh, Florence Fuchs von Nordhoff, and there is a short bio about him on the website for the International Film Festival Rotterdam. Uh, it mentions that he served in World War II. Uh, it does not say, uh, it, does, it does not give any details on that service. But based on what I was looking at, I don't think, it's, like, it's not like these two seem to really go on from this film to do like a lot of special effects work. But like, mm. again, the stuff, the work in here is, is tremendous. Like I can only imagine like this stop motion uh, animation inspired other stop motion artists in the future. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Okay, well, so are you ready to talk a bit about the plot? Let's do it. Okay, so let's zoom in on the opening. Uh, interesting way of approaching it. <laughs> Just the opening for this film is incredibly bland, but also abrupt, abruptly bland. Yes, yes. Uh, silent, ominous opening on military airfields and airplanes. Uh, I got a note for if you are going to go back in time and make movies in the 1950s, here's one way to mix it up. Don't pad your movie out with shots of airplanes flying around, landing and taking off. It's not that interesting. I don't I don't know what <laughs> people were into about this. That's stock footage, just one way to pad it out. You don't need to pad it out though. I mean, like shorter movies are good. This movie actually, we haven't mentioned this yet, but this is great, great uh in the range of drive-in movie length. This is a 74-minute movie, and I give it yeah. credit for that. There is absolutely no reason to make your movie longer than it needs to be. It should be exactly as short as you can get it with it doing what you want it to do. Anyway, okay, so back to this uh, military airfield. So we see a, a soldier, he's like gu- a guard with a rifle having a smoke by a fence. And there's a sign on the fence that gives us some uh, that gives us some setup. It says, U.S. Air Force Interceptor Command, Experimental Station Number 6, Winthrop, Manitoba, Canada. So Winthrop is the name of this small local town. And there's no music, almost no sound effects really in the beginning. There's like a spy plane flying overhead, and we see radar antennas swiveling around uh, above the base. And then the guard begins to hear something, a sound we we will hear many more times throughout the film, a kind of scuffling, crunching sound, like somebody walking around in a vat of kick cereal. Uh, <laughs> Rachel and I were calling it the Captain Crunch noises. Uh, she she was saying, like, man, this movie is making me hungry for Captain Crunch. And I get what she's saying, because every time the monsters show up, it's crunch, crunch. But it was it's good branding. It's like when that sound occurs, you, you A, know that it is, it is unnatural. It doesn't really sound like anything you should be hearing in the woods or in a barn or wherever the action's taking place. And then when you hear it subsequently, subsequently you know what's up. Right. So the guard goes to investigate. Uh, there's a scream, and then he comes across, there's a dead guy in the woods. And then we get the title, Fiend Without a Face. For some reason, in the title screen, fiend and face are done with like electric electric bolts. Um, yeah, I was wondering why that is. Maybe because the the uh, the atomic power station in the movie plays a role. Yes, this is a, these are atomic radar bolts, not not lightning bolts uh, or thunderbolts. Yeah. It's easy to make that mistake. 
Uh, so we get the credits and then a lot of footage of military aircraft screaming around at high speed and taking off and landing and stuff on the local runways. And we learn some stuff about the setting. This appears to be a foreign U.S. military base up in northern Manitoba. We learn it's very rural, far away from the nearest big city. Uh, and then we meet our lug hero with a flat top haircut. This is Major Cummings and his little buddy. Again, we couldn't remember which character this is. So maybe this is Captain somebody or Sergeant somebody. It's mm-hmm. his buddy here. And his buddy, it, it, this is nearly the opening line of the film. <laughs> I think there's like maybe some little comment right before it. But pretty much the first thing said by a human is Cummings' buddy saying, you ever think of trying sleep instead of Benzedrine? You might like it. And <laughs> while he's saying this, he is like pouring Major Cummings a drink of some clear liquid out of a Florence flask, like a boiling flask you would use in a lab. Yeah, this is great. I immediately chuckled. And you, so from the context, you don't have to even be told what Benzedrine is. But Benzedrine yeah. was a brand name for amphetamine sulfate, which was used and I think ultimately abused uh, from the 1930s through the 1970s. So <laughs> Major Cummings here, though portrayed as like a straight-laced baby face, uh, is just tight on speed through presumably <laughs> most of the film. Uh-huh. Uh, there's there's a later scene where he's doing his research and uh-huh. he's just pounding bennies and speed reading books on experimental neuroscience and psychology. It's uh, it, it, it's the kind of thing where I guess this is just like I say he's just a, supposed to be a normal military guy, but by today's standards, like this is this is kind of crazy. Yeah. Before we learn literally anything else about him, we learn that he is jacked on Benzedrine. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think this is, I think the way it's positioned in the movie is to, is not to say, Hey, this guy is abusing drugs and isn't in his right mind. It's to show us, wow, he's really busy. You know, yes, he has this, a lot of work to do. <laughs> this is his, his, uh, his, his, uh, his work ethic is just so strong that he just hasn't slept in weeks. Okay, so we got to find out who is this guy who died in the woods. That's what they're talking about. And we learn that it is a character named Jacques Grisel. Uh, in fact, uh, Major Cummings knows all about him here because they immediately had the FBI send over a file on this guy. Mm-hmm. This happens multiple times in the movie. It basically presupposes that the FBI, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation has just files they can send over on random Canadian citizens. The same mm-hmm. thing happens later with Dr. Walgate. Yeah, just send over the FBI file. But yeah, there's, neither of these people are implied to have any criminal record, and mm-hmm. they're not even Americans. They're like just <laughs> random Canadian people, but the FBI know all about them. And, you know, this is something that, again, kind of like the Benzedrine, it could be played up as weird later on. Like, there's this Canadian town where the FBI has elaborate files on everyone. Isn't that crazy? Uh, But in this film, it's just presented as, yep, this is how it works. Yeah, that's just, that's the way of the world. There's nothing remarkable about it. Welcome to Um, the 50s. So the military men are all immediately suspicious of this dead guy, of Jack Grizel. What was he doing out in the woods at three in the morning? Uh, they're like, what was he doing out there? Farming? Um, and uh, and they're talking about him. They're saying, who can forget the look on that dead man's face? Again, it's implying that there was a, an expression of such horror that, that it, his death is uh, implied to be understood as unnatural. <laughs> Uh, here, I just want to remark, we get our first meeting uh, while in a thrilling scene of them walking across the office to go talk to the coroner. Uh, we we uh, meet uh, Sandwich Man, the man who is trying to hide his bologna sandwich from the commander. Mm, yeah, quite a specimen. Sandwich Man is later killed by the, the brain creatures in the last act of the movie. 
uh, tragically. I wanted Sandwich Man to make it, but uh, so they have a, they have a talk with I guess the the um, doctor on the base or the coroner or something, and they're like, "Hey, was this death caused by radiation?" Uh, well, they need an autopsy to find out, but the locals don't want an autopsy. Uh, so Cummings has to go meet with the colonel, and the colonel is already in a meeting with the local town's mayor, who is named Hawkins, and the sister of the dead man, Barbara Grizel, played by Kim Parker, who you could barely tell is there because uh, her brother was killed by a monster in the woods. She, she's very matter-of-fact about everything. Well, maybe she had a Mark Hamill character come up to her and break it to her and say, I'm sorry, but your brother died in the woods and it was weird. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. What did he know about the Giver? <laughs> uh, but actually, no, they do suspect the brother of having a forbidden knowledge because the colonel during this meeting, he brings up the fact that Kim Parker's brother here had a notebook with him containing notes on the flight times of airplanes leaving the base. Ah, okay, mm. so... That this raises a serious specter. Was he some kind of communist spy hiding in Manitoba? Well, no. Barbara ends up making the colonel look absolutely foolish by showing how this was part of her brother's attempt to document a connection between the fighter jet flight times and his cows being unhappy. So all the local farmers are irate at the military base because they think that the airplanes are making their cows spew nasty milk. So the colonel is sort of humiliated, and then uh, Cummings gives uh, Kim Parker a ride home. He is obviously, like, romantically interested in her, which is weird given the circumstances. Um, uh, but he's, like, at one point on the right, he's, like, driving her in a Jeep down this road through the woods. And he's talking about the guys at the military base. And he's like, we're human. We're not monsters from outer space. Nice. Now, here we have sort of the opening of the mystery, and more characters will be attacked by unknown creatures uh, throughout the film. But I, I guess here, uh, I'm not going to go scene by scene, but maybe we can focus on some things that were interesting. One thing I want to talk about is the nuclear reactor scenes. So, for example, there's a scene later where the Colonel and, and Major Cummings are trying to use radar to, like, I, I think they're trying to scan the entire globe so they can get you know, use this one radar station to see every flight going on in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, but something is draining the power from their atomic reactor. So the radar isn't working the way it's supposed to be. And they're like, what could it be? Well, they call up their friend who works in the reactor core, who again is wearing what looks like a, I guess this is supposed to be some kind of radiation shielding, like a lead lined suit or something, mm -hmm. but he, it looks like a, a kind of slick leather trench coat. I don't know. It's interesting. And they're, they're of course like push it for more power. Take out those rods. We want the reactor at 180%. And the guy is like, oh, okay, that's dangerous, but I'll do it. Meanwhile, local farmers are uh, repeatedly just attacked by invisible monsters. We see, uh, we see a lady going to feed her chickens, and then she's like attacked by something we can't see in the barn. And then her husband comes, and then he's attacked as well. They finally do an autopsy on these people, and the scientists uh, confirm. They say, uh, the brain is gone. Yes, sucked out like an egg through these two holes. Uh, the <laughs> spinal cord is missing, too. And the uh, doctor at the army base says, I'm a doctor, not a detective colonel. There's nothing about this in the books. Major Cummings had the best explanation so far. Mental vampire. Mm. And I think this is where uh, the doctor we were talking about earlier comes in and he's like, rubbish. There are no animals around here that suck out people's brains. I mean, it is really hard to imagine how this works. 
yeah. uh, two holes in the back of the head and the entire brain and spinal column are somehow sucked out through that hole and then but are not like liquefied presumably in the process because we see these brains and spinal columns crawling around later in the film with just uh, like extra tentacles coming out of them yeah we get more scenes of Major Cummings uh, uh, being overly friendly with uh, with Barbara. There's one scene where he goes to visit her house and he just like knocks on the door and it's open and he comes in and oh she's getting out of the shower in a towel and and he and it's oh it's so embarrassing, uh, but she's unfazed by it. She's just like oh let me put something on and meanwhile you can uh, peruse this book called The Principles of Thought Control that's sitting on my <laughs> table here by R. E. Walgate, who uh, again is our uh our our our, our our brain expert that we'll be getting to in a minute. Right. So Wal- we find out that Barbara works for Walgate. She like transcribes all of his notes uh, and helps him write his books. Oh, also this very same scene. So like she leaves the room for a minute. He's looking at these books. She comes back having put a robe and everything on and, uh, and they're like being very flirty. And then he, he, I think he's leaning into to kiss her, but then some guy barges in and it's this guy, Constable Gibbons or uh, Gibson. And this is the guy with the, the, the baffling accent. Yeah. And it's like a little Im- bit Scottish sounding. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And he's immediately totally hostile to this guy. Um, he's like, have you found that GI killer yet? Uh, you know, it was probably one of you guys, probably some, some wacko from this base. Oh, and then they immediately start punching each other. Yeah. Now, eventually Gibbons ends up leading like a posse to go find the, he again, thinks it is a GI from the U S air base that has gone rogue. And so they're like looking for him in the woods, uh, with the posse, uh, so they're on the hunt and then Gibbons disappears from the hunt. And then later he returns stumbling into a town meeting, uh, apparently having had his brain partially sucked out. He's just like vacant eyed and like, Oh yeah. just kind of stammering. It's, it's actually kind of a disturbing scene. Cause it's yeah. just like, Oh, this, this guy, we didn't like this character particularly. I mean, he was kind of violent and possessive, but now we, I mean, we didn't want to see this happen to him. Yeah. Now there's another scene where eventually, uh, I don't remember how he gets there, but uh, Major Cummings is investigating something and he ends up at the tomb of someone in town and he gets trapped inside a crypt. Yeah. He wanted to check out, it's a body of one of the victims and he ends up going into this crypt. And so this is wonderful sequence in the film, which feels like we have accidentally trespassed into some sort of a gothic horror movie, you know, yeah. because it, yeah. and it's playing into the whole mental vampire thing, you know, the two wounds on the back of the neck, because suddenly we follow him down into what seems like a perfect setting for a vampire's tomb. There is even a sarcophagus with the lid ajar. And uh, yeah, we're just, we're like, okay, I guess it's a vampire movie now. It's vampires and one is surely going to jump out. Uh, but no, instead, so what happens is somebody locks him in the crypt, which I think actually the, it provides a pretty interesting, I mean, I don't really buy that this crypt is airtight, maybe, but <laughs> he starts like running out of air and it's a desperate scene where he's trying to get out. Uh, he only barely makes it when his friends come and open the door up from the outside. Yeah, I really like this sequence too. There's some great stuff with the candle. The candle is fading because it doesn't have enough oxygen. And, uh, you know, if it goes out, he's going to be in this lightless, airless environment. He's going to be entombed as a corpse. But yeah, then they free him at the last second. 
But how do we find, uh, we got to find out who locked him in the crypt. Well, eventually it is discovered to have been Dr. Walgate. And this leads into the revelation of the nature of the monsters. So, so what's basically, what's the scheme, Rob? Can you lay it out? Okay, it's he he has a whole sequence where he explains it, but he's doing these experiments, essentially creating tulpas. Like I can if I focus my brain and I make this face, I can create this thing that goes about doing my bidding. And, you know, as is often the case with things like tulpas and thought projected monsters, they start getting out of hand. They get a little too powerful. Oh, and the whole time he's doing this by sort of timing his experiments with some of the radiation uh, based radar experiments that are going on. Like he's I don't think he's actually doing any um, like capital E espionage here, but he's, he's a smart dude. And so he, he reads scientific journals. He's able to figure out what they're doing there and able to figure out how to time his experiments just right. So he's benefiting from that radiation. I think before, yeah. So he's trying to harness the radiation from when the reactor is at maximum capacity for their radar experiments. He's trying to use that. I think before he's creating these Tulpa like things, He's just trying to do telekinesis, right? Like yeah. at first he's, trying he's to just move trying something with his brain. Yeah. Like he's trying to turn a page in a book with his brain, which he eventually is able to do. And then he keeps ratcheting that up to bigger and bigger acts of telekinesis. And then eventually the thought escapes his head and becomes its own entity. And then it starts going around and sucking out people's brains. And then there's just brains aplenty. There are brains all over the place. Right. And so these are, as as we've been saying, invisible for most of the film. But when made visible, which uh, they do by cranking up the radiation, I believe. Yes. They they just, okay. They think we can see them if we push the reactor to even more beyond maximum capacity. So fantastic. It's such a characteristically 1950s movie uh trope by the way you know it's like charles b griffith saying does it have to be atomic radiation and corman says yes uh i guess that was the case here so it's atomic radiation plus also uh it's it's a psychic powers thriller it's one about the occult manifestations of human thoughts which i would say that subgenre is less confined to a particular time and place in history it's less the a 1950s thing you know there's always horror about the idea of what if thoughts were more powerful than we imagined yeah, and these, when made visible, these again look like squirming brains with a, the spinal column is like uh, like a worm's body or something, and it mm-hmm. has added tentacles and kind of antenna on top of it. It's a fabulous stop-motion creature, and it does, like, true, I, I joked about the, the, the elevator pitch being your, your brain is gross, um, it, but it is kind of that. It's kind of this this monster design that's just like, look at the brain in this attached spinal cord. Look at this this anatomic illustration. This is yeah. disgusting. Uh, and this is apparently what we are. We are this brain. Well, what if that brain was just crawling around, uh, trying to break through uh, shutters and leaping onto women, the back of women's necks and wrapping their spinal cord around their necks? Wouldn't that be horrifying? Oh, it's like the face hugger in Alien, except it's going for the back of your head instead of the front. I didn't think about that connection. I wonder if, uh, you know, there are all sorts of papers talking about just how the design of uh, the xenomorphs varying forms come into being. And, you know, and, uh, you know of course, there are very key in, uh, individuals involved in that process, including uh, the, the late H.R. Giger. But uh, I, I wonder, I, I don't remember anyone ever pointing to Fiend without a face. But yeah, the face huggers and the fiends have a lot in common. 
But yeah, basically this this scene turns into a uh, Night of the Living Dead style siege on a house where all the the human characters barricade themselves inside and the brains are attacking from every from every angle trying to get through the windows. I think at one point they come down the chimney. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and this leads into that great line from that clip you shared for me where uh, it, the the movie it came from Hollywood where Dan Aykroyd shows a clip from this movie and says we just sprayed for brains last week. <laughs> Yeah, that that was the first place I saw any of this these sequences. That was in 1982s. It came from Hollywood, where there's a there are different sections in that film about different types of old movies, and one of them, the probably my favorite, is the brains section, where Dan Aykroyd plays this mad scientist character, kind of like hosting this segment, and it's a, just a super. Um, just a super intense performance. Uh, but then he sets up all of these wonderful clips of brains and brain monsters from movies. So yeah, again, these brains just run amok. They're trying to break into the cabin. They're breaking into the cabin. They're attacking people. They're, they're murdering people. Meanwhile, they're trying to get over there to shut the radiation off, right? Isn't that the idea? Well, shut it. I, mean, I think this movie has a very poor understanding of how atomic reactors work. So a nuclear... I think their idea is if we blow up the control station of the nuclear reactor, then it will stop going and the power will stop and uh-huh. these things will lose their, their power because they're being fed by the radiation somehow. I'm not a nuclear engineer, uh, so you know if I'm wrong about this, write in and let me know. But I, I'm pretty sure that destroying the control station of a nuclear reactor would have the opposite consequences. It would be more likely that the reactor would like continue, would go out of control and melt down rather than it would like stop running. And then they would be even more visible and more powerful. But of course, you know, what's going to happen ultimately. Yeah. They do get to blow up the reactor or whatever, shuts it all down. The brains will really lose their power and they, they don't just fall to the ground lifeless and, you know, then somebody has to come around and collect the brains. No, they melt away into basically just greasy spots on the floor. And it's a stop motion effect. And it's wonderful, a wonderful stop motion sequence. And I think it's saying something because sometimes these transition effects in stop motion, even in much later films, can look a little awkward. But I thought these looked tremendous. Oh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. The dissolving is it, it looks so gross. So there you have it, Fiend Without a Face. Uh, yeah, it's a fun flick. It's worth worth checking out. Uh, and like I say, it's Criterion Collection. Um, <laughs> there, so there have been a number of DVDs of this put out over the years, but the 2010 Criterion Collection edition is, is I think, definitely one to pick up. It's not out on Blu-ray, but the, the Criterion Collection edition is also available to rent or buy digitally. And I watched the Criterion Collection version as part of the AMC Plus subscription on Prime, at least here in the States as of this recording. Uh, you can also stream it on the Criterion channel, which I mentioned earlier, which I have subscribed to in the past. And I, I, I highly recommend if you want to dive into uh, a lot of films. Again, Samurai Pictures, Fellini Pictures, but then also uh, all sorts of weird and wonderful things you didn't even know existed. So we're going to go ahead and close it out here, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have thoughts on Fiend Without a Face, Brain Monsters in general, any of the people or things we mentioned in this episode, write in. We would love to hear from you. Uh, a reminder that uh, Weird House Cinema publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, but this is our day to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. I blog about these uh, motion pictures at samutamusic.com. You can also go to stufftoblowyourmind.com 
stufftoblowyourmind.com and go to the store tab and you can check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind merch section, which also has some Weird House Cinema merch in there, including the new Rub the Fur t-shirt or like Rub the Fur uh, tote bag, whatever you want to put Rub the Fur on, you can do it. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.